I think I will talk about non-clinging, otherwise known as letting go. I think I ended, or at least later on in last week's talk, I shared the words of Ajahn Chah. It may have been another time, but I thought it was last week. His words were, do everything with a mind that lets go. If you let go a little, you'll have a little peace. If you let go a lot, you'll have a lot of peace. If you let go completely, you'll have complete peace and freedom. Your struggles with the world will come to an end. One of my colleagues, uh, Joseph Goldstein, in trying to to reconcile the, the various flavors of the different Buddhist traditions and different wisdom traditions in general, did a, a long study on the commonalities of all the different traditions. And he coalesced all this in one of his, in his, one of his more recent books called One Dharma. And he reduced, he saw that the common theme in every single tradition, regardless of the different forms and rituals, it all came down to non-clinging, liberation through non-clinging. And we can see in our own lives that almost every time we are suffering, almost for anything that we may be suffering about, there is a some measure of being in contention with reality, resisting reality, or grasping at how we would like things to be. Uh, usually, there's some inability to let things be as they have come to be, or let things go, let things be, really. The tendency to cling to pleasurable experience that has come and we want it to last but it doesn't to push away the unpleasant things make them go away we even come to meditate and we try to quiet our mind not always because uh, it's about being not because meditation practice is about having a quiet mind it's because we don't like our busy mind. Because we haven't really come into a balanced, spacious, wise relationship with the fact that our mind is sometimes busy. And so all of us, to some measure, fall into what the Buddha called Lokutra or Lokiya Sukha. Notions of happiness a kind of happiness that depends on conditions being the way you want them to. He called that, Lokiya Sukha, he called it the happiness of bondage, the happiness of slavery, because you're happy when you have it and not so happy when you don't. This, he saw, is the trick of the mind to keep us in a constant state 
of dependency, hostage to, hostage to how we think things should be, could be, want things to be, instead of letting things be just the way they are, finding our composure with however it is. And what really impacted the, the Buddha in his own search was that time under the Bodhi tree when he had learned all about the limitations of pleasure he had seen in his own life through the meetings with the so-called heavenly messengers. He had seen that our clinging to, uh, to our identification with youth was a source of suffering, our pride in youth. Our clinging to, to our identification with health, our pride in health, and even clinging to life and our identification with life and, and existence uh, was suffering. When these heavenly messengers visited and reminded him why they called heavenly messenger, messengers is because they remind us that these are a fact of existence. If you're born, you know that Wiley's Dictionary definition of birth, the leading cause of death. (laughs) So it began for him a search uh, for some way of being with this, learning to somehow be in harmony with this truth. And that's when he started to practice. And the first practices that he did taught him how to enter into states of great concentration and absorption in order to abide in the state of bliss. But then he noticed that being able to abide in a state of bliss was just high-class lokiya sukha, high-class happiness that depended on the conditions of concentration. And he saw that even that most rarefied state of concentration would eventually pass away and leave him either clinging to it or, or still searching for something more reliable. And so he saw that it was not, that freedom is not about abiding in some special state, quiet mind, high energy, bliss, delight any state because all states change. Hallelujah. (laughs) All states. (laughs) love it it's amazing how singing sounds in the face of ancient dharma (laughs) so this is the some would say this is the dead teaching all about the Buddha's life and why am I talking about a dead person but what he realized 
under that Bodhi tree is as relevant today in our living experience as it was at the time of his life. And finally he sat down under that Bodhi tree, having given up the, the indulgences in, in Lokiya Sukha, in that conditioned happiness, given up the indulgence of the high-class conditioned happiness, and saw that, he, that if he were go, going to find any place to rest, any kind of real freedom, it would have to be, it would have to somehow not have much to do with what was happening in his mind or his life or his body, but it had to have something to do with the, the way his mind related to what was happening. That freedom was not a place and he sat, as you all know the story, and this is just relevant to any single experience in our life, anything that's going on. And he, by sitting with a continuity of attention, with a, a mental strength born of all that intensive absorption practice, so that it, he still was able to put that to good use, even if it was unreliable. He was able to apply that power of mind that comes when we are, when we are more well-trained and more able to be here and now. That's why I started tonight, here and now rather than there and then. He applied that power of mind to a careful examination of what came through his mind, moment by moment. And you can make it more general, what comes through our life, moment to moment. And he, through this careful observation, careful attention, in a balanced way, not clinging to what he was noticing, not pushing away, simply being mindful and clearly comprehending what's happening. You can see that is the, the secret healing ingredient, a secret healing ingredient to being able to find our composure or find our balance with things the way they are, which are always uh, unreliable. And the more he paid attention, the more he started to see three, what are considered the three marks of existence. That which is common to every single experience that you have, that I have, that we have both in the most microscopic subtle way and in the most macroscopic, worldly way. There are three marks to our experience. Those three marks are that every experience, this gets back to those heavenly messengers again, every experience is marked by change and impermanence. Every experience that arises, has the, its very nature is to pass away. Every experience that arises and passes away is marked by unreliability, by what he called dukkha, unsatisfactoriness. There's no way to find any permanent satisfaction in conditions that change. How do you feel about that when you hear it? Just think what you've been looking, what you've been trying to find satisfaction in just this week alone. <laughs> Just this day alone. (laughs) 
and he saw that what was marked by change and unreliability, especially the element of change, anything marked by change could not be said to be me, my, or mine. It is marked by not self, not me, not mine. We cannot be defined by any experience that is fleeting. So where did he find this? He found this through this, as we often use that phrase here on Tuesday night, that through his fathom-long body, he saw that what he had taken to be me and mine, this very body, this fathom-long body that is one of the sources, the deepest sources of our identity, he saw that this can't be me and mine. It may be conventionally speaking, it's not you and yours, but neither is it me and mine. It is a changing condition. Everything in this body in ceaseless flux. It is born without, without, uh, it's, there's no, there's no one to be found in this body. It's in a constant state of flux. Now the idea of this is a little bit crazy making. The reality of it, when we're in the flow of it, not so problematic. The thought of it though is, well, if I'm not my body, then you know, who am I? And then we go to our moods, and moods constantly changing. Can't, where's me in the moods? They're all, where am I in that? No, no I to be found in the moods. And then the thoughts. Well, at least if I'm not my moods, I'm my thoughts. But then you see these 65,000 thoughts, 90% repeats from the day before, coming completely unbidden like a waterfall like a thought machine with really no prompting at all. The mind is just spewing out what one person who came up earlier said, white noise, often. Just this constant chatter. You think we ask for that and that there's some little agent in there saying, now think 65,000 thoughts and then repeat 90% of them the next day? No. Thoughts are their own thinkers, they think themselves. So the Buddha saw this so clearly that there was nothing in this mind-body process, nothing internal or external, that could be clung to as me and mine and I. And the effect of seeing this made his mind stop grabbing, stop being falling under that delusion, that mis- misidentification, that clinging and the pushing away of the unpleasant, grabbing on the pleasant, pushing away the unpleasant. And his mind relaxed into harmony with the, the fact of change. When I was sitting with, a, with my teacher uh, Punjaji in India back in the 90s, who I spent a lot of time with, someone came to him and said, I want to... Uh, and they were just so sincere and eager. And they said, I want to abide in, I forgot, either it was bliss or freedom, or I want to abide in bliss. And he looked at the person, and he often would just say something that would just steal their mind in an instant. 
he looked at them and got that little impish grin on his face and he says, you want to abide in bliss? He says, I teach non-abiding. He's saying, I teach, don't land anywhere. Don't fixate anywhere in any idea, even in the idea of freedom. Even in the idea of bondage, even in the idea of self. Don't fixate anywhere. I teach non-abiding. Which is just another way of saying, I teach non-clinging. I teach letting go. I teach being in harmony with things the way they are. Now, when I'm, if, if you or if I'm sitting here and just hearing those songs from outside, just hearing, comprehending hearing, hearing sound being known, any problem? And let's say that there's a version that arises to the sound interrupting my wonderful Dharma talk. (laughs) And let's say there is mindfulness of that aversion, clearly comprehending aversion. Any problem? In that moment of mindful attention, that moment of clear comprehension, is there anyone abiding anywhere? Is there any kind of holding, fixation, grabbing, clinging, condemning? There's just things being known. So in literally in every moment of mindful attention, you could also say in every moment of kindness, I was <laughs> in every moment of uh, the one that was going through my mind during the quiet time this evening was that yoga practice in India called the laughing yoga where their their practice is ha 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 ho 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 ha 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 ho we should all do it together again tonight ha 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 ho 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 ha 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 in a, in a moment of laughter no clinging no mind no me no you no self at all just laughing just the suchness of things. So we, of course, we're all conditioned, all trained to try to find a place of abiding. And we use the metaphor of, I want to come home to the present moment. And, and I even, I resonate with that language often. But home isn't a place. Home is a way of being with. It is a, it's a relaxed presence. It's a flexibility of mind. It's a vacuousness. It's an openness. It's a transparency. It's an ease with, even with misery. Or not. But it's just seeing things the way they are. Yata Bhutta, the phrase in Pali seeing things as they are, seeing things as they have come to be in this moment. So a traditional, this for me it's a tradition to share the 
great words of Ajahn Sumedho, one of my teachers, great monk. Many of you have heard this many times because it's... I like it so much I share it all the time. It goes like this. The practice of letting go is very effective for minds obsessed by compulsive thinking. And you could substitute thinking, planning, rehearsing, comparing, evaluating, controlling, all of various things. The practice of letting go is very effective for our, our compulsive minds. You simplify your meditation practice down to just two words, letting go. Rather than try to develop this practice, develop that, achieve this and go into that and understand this and read the sutras, study the Abhidharma, for those of you who don't know what that is, that's Buddhist psychology, learn the Pali and Sanskrit, then Majamaka and the Prajnaparamita, these are different traditions, get ordinations in the Hinayana, the Mahayana, the Vajrayana, and as my friend Wes Nisker added, another tradition called the Hahayana, write books and become the world-renowned authority on Buddhism, instead of becoming the world's expert on Buddhism and being invited to great international Buddhist conferences, just let go, let go, let go. I did nothing but this for about two years. Every time I tried to understand or figure things out, I'd say, let go, let go, until the desire would fade out. So I'm making it very simple for you to save you from getting caught in incredible amounts of suffering. There's nothing more sorrowful than having to attend international Buddhist conferences. (laughs) Some of you might have the desire to become the Buddha of the age, Maitreya, radiating love throughout the world. But instead, I suggest just being an earthworm. Letting go of the desire to radiate love throughout the world. Be an earthworm who knows only two words. Let go, let go, let go. And he's speaking as a Theravada monk from what he calls the Hinayana tradition, what's sometimes pejoratively called the Hinayana tradition. So he says, you see, ours is the lesser vehicle, the Hinayana. So we have only these simple poverty-stricken practices. But he doesn't stop there says, the important thing in meditation practice is to be constant and resolute in the practice, determined to be awakened. In a, the way I would put it, determined to stay awake, to stay in that state of presence and non-clinging, because presence and non-clinging are synonymous. He says the important thing is to be constant and resolute in the practice, determined to be awakened. This is not to be conceited or foolish, but resolute, even when the going is rough. Remind yourself of the Buddha, which means the capacity to be awake. Buddha means awake. The Dharma, the truth, how things are. The Sangha, all the beings who... Who are, who are interested in this as you are, and all the beings for thousands of years who have put this to practice and realized this heart or mind of non-clinging. It says, remind yourself of the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha, and stay with it, whatever's here. Letting go of despair, letting go of anguish, letting go of pain, of doubt, of everything that arises and passes, 
that we habitually cling to and identify with. Keep this letting go like a constant refrain in your mind so it just pops up on its own no matter where you are. And I would simply add to let go of letting go. Remove the word letting go. Remove the word I need to let go. And just let be and then forget those words too. Just for one moment at a time. See what that's like. Test it out moment by moment. What happens when mind is not fighting with reality, not in contention? Gendon Rinpoche, in his beautiful so-called Vajra song called Free and Easy, he says, happiness cannot be found through great effort and willpower, but is already present in open relaxation, letting go. Don't strain yourself. There's nothing to do or to undo. Whatever momentarily arises in the body-mind has no real importance at all, has little reality whatsoever. Why identify with and become attached to it, passing judgment upon it and ourselves? Far better to simply simply let the entire game happen on its own, springing up and falling back like waves, without changing and manipulating anything. And notice how everything vanishes and reappears magically again and again, time without end. Only our searching for happiness prevents us from seeing it. It's like a vivid rainbow which you pursue without ever catching, or a dog chasing its own tail. Although peace and happiness do not exist as an actual thing or place, it is always available and accompanies you every instant. Don't believe in the reality of good and bad experiences. They are like today's ephemeral weather, like rainbows in the sky. Wanting to grasp the ungraspable, you exhaust yourself in vain. As soon as you open, relax this tight fist of grasping. Infinite space is there, open, inviting, comfortable. Make use of this spaciousness, this freedom and natural ease. Don't search any further. Don't go into the tangled jungle looking for the great awakened elephant who is already resting quietly at home in front of your own hearth. Nothing to do or to undo, nothing to force, nothing to want, and nothing missing. Emaho, marvelous, everything unfolds by itself.
So each of us has to find the place in our life where there's most clinging, where there's most, where we're the most resistant to things the way they are. And it's really the releasing of that that's not just the, it's not passive at all. It's, it's actually the, creates the conditions for us to be responsive and to help where help is needed, to be active where activity is needed. What actually makes it hard for us to respond to each other, to connect, to do good, whatever it is, what is being in a state of frustration, being in a state of worry, anxiety, fear, all the states of contentiousness. So maybe the first place that we bring kindness and attention to are the places of clinging. Not adding any more judgment to that, but bringing in openness. Let that be. Let our fear be fear. Let our anxiety be anxious. Let our controlling nature be felt. Ah, this is what controlling is like. Let this be too. Embracing it all. Nothing to do or to undo. Nothing to fix. And if you're, it can be in a simple way. I always think of, because I have the reading in front of me, I think of the example of the wonderful woman Nadine Stair who, who in the end of her life or in the latter years of her life she realized that she'd played it really, really safe. And in her one of her final poems at age 85, I don't actually know how long she lived, but she entitled the poem If I Had My Life to Live Over. She said, if I had my life to live over, I'd make more mistakes next time. I would limber up. I would be sillier than I've been this trip. I would take fewer things seriously. I would take more chances. I would climb more mountains and swim more rivers. I would eat more ice cream and less beans. I would perhaps have more actual trouble, but I'd have fewer imaginary ones. You see, I'm one of those people who live sensibly and sanely, hour after hour, day after day. Oh, I've had my moments. And if I had it to to do over again, I'd have many more of them. In fact, I'd have nothing else, just moments, one after another, instead of living so many years ahead of each day. I've been one of those persons who never goes anywhere without a thermometer, a hot water bottle, a raincoat, and a parachute. If I had it to do over again, I would travel lighter than I have. If I had my life to live over... I would start barefoot earlier in the spring and stay that way later in the fall. I would go to more dances. I would ride more merry-go-rounds. I would pick more daisies. It's easy to forget this attitude, this potential for ease in the midst of it all, in this frenetic compulsion obsession with what's next that we tend to uh, dwell in. So it's, as uh, Bo Lozoff says when he 
when he talks about how everybody is busy keeping up with the Joneses, and he says it's time that we understand that the Joneses are not happy. He says it's, this is the, the, people are miserable. This is the American dream of the 21st century. It's time to wake up from such a dream. And fortunately, the waking up, you don't want to turn waking up into the, another burdensome project. It's just moment by moment. Open your eyes right now to the fact that you're sitting in this room. And for maybe just a few minutes in the span of your life, don't look back for a moment. Don't look ahead. Just be here. That's, it's that simple in a way. And then have many more of those moments. And you'll find that you start relaxing in the midst of it all. And in fact, things will continue, as Ajahn Chah says, things will continue to arise and pass. Many wonderful things will pass your way, but you'll be still. You'll be present. He says, this is the happiness of the Buddha. It's just being awake in the midst of it all. So finally, just the words again of, of the, the Buddha considered by some his most pithy instructions of all simple sutra Nothing whatsoever should be clung to as I, me, or mine. Whoever has heard this teaching has heard the entire teaching of the Dharma. Whoever has put this teaching to practice practices the entire Dharma. Whoever realizes the truth of this realizes the entire Dharma. So let go, let go, let go. Patricia. Pleasure. been clinging to the idea of how the house should be, how the I'm laughing. <laughs> oh. Yes, of course, it's natural. <laughs> oh. So sorry.
Beautiful. <laughs> wow. Thank you. Thank you for disclosing your clinging and your and your realization and and we all have our our measure of of dukkha of how we'd like things to be different some of it's high class dukkha some of it's really survival dukkha and you know it's all dukkha is dukkha dukkha is the word for unsatisfactory that which is difficult to bear every one of us has some peace and whatever way that we can come into some harmony with it is uh, and so thank you for telling your story so we do have to call it a night let's as we always do consider because we when we are quiet and in those in those perhaps rare moments of letting be of letting go we we touch that place where where life is where we are being touched and touching each other, all things and all beings at all times, we realize that connection. And from that vantage point, we realize that everything we do and think and say not only impacts us, but impacts all beings everywhere. So we, so what we do tonight, any goodness, any benefits, any blessings, any, any fruits of our being together, we, we hope, we wish they will touch all beings and be of some benefit and and we send the blessings of our practice with a deep wish that all beings without exception and all the different kinds of challenges that all beings can find happiness in their lives and the causes of happiness and all beings can be free of suffering and the causes of suffering and that all beings can know that sacred happiness that is without sorrow that unconditioned happiness, happiness of non-clinging. And then at least that all beings can grow in serenity and equanimity, able to flow with the ups and downs, the joys and the sorrows, less grasping, less aversion to people, situations, politicians. And I, you notice I didn't put them in the same category as people. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> And finally, to dedicate today and every day our practice to the to the that it be of uh, that we dedicate it to the welfare and benefit of all beings. May all beings be free and relax. Thank you for listening. I thought that a talk on non-abiding and would be good on Earthquake Day in Washington D.C. <laughs> like they've never <laughs> a day the Earth stood still. <laughs> anyway, just a reminder that the room costs us $150 a week. 
Any generosity toward the room rental is appreciated. Any teaching here is offered as a practice of Donna. If you'd like to respond with your own generosity in the form of support in the basket, teacher Donna, thank you. And uh, just a reminder that you can offer Donna in many ways. If you want, would like to have your Donna tax deductible, you can write a check to the to the St. John the Evangelist Episcopal Church with Mission Dharma on the on the memo line, and it will be tax deductible. So, in any way, cash, all that stuff. Thank you for your practice, and hope to see you next Tuesday. Let go, let go, let go. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.